So uh, I mentioned last time I preached back first, I think first Sunday of November, uh, that Mickey has given me the opportunity to start preaching a little more regularly every five weeks or so. Um, so, so in that sermon, preached kind of the introductory sermon to Colossians, uh, and I trust that you remember the whole thing in detail. Um, it's only been five weeks. Uh, if you don't, then you and I are on the same page, uh, because I, I myself had to go kind of back through, uh, back through my notes, just refreshing. Um, so turn with me to Colossians 1. We're still in chop- chapter 1. Uh, we'll be for um, a few more months, I guess, every five weeks. <clears throat> So in Colossians 1, uh, last time we looked at verses 1 through 8, um, and, and we, we looked at Paul's prayer for the Colossians, and uh, what, what's clear in this text, one, that our identity is in Christ, two, that our faith, hope, and love are in Christ, and three, that the fruit we bear is in Christ. So Paul is thankful to the Colossians, he's heard of their faith in Christ, the love that they have for all the saints um, because of the gospel. Uh, so, so this morning we're going to continue on, uh, and, it, and it's the same prayer, but it's also a little bit, a little bit different. D. A. Carson has a book entitled "Praying with Paul," uh, and it is it's a, really a compilation of some sermons he preached on the topic. And he makes he makes the argument, and, and I think a lot of us might agree with this: that too many Christians have forgotten how to pray. We don't know how to pray. Um, and, and there's all kinds of books on prayer and pray like this and pray like that. But uh, Carson contends that we should just go to the scriptures if we want to learn how to pray. Uh, so this whole book, is, it just looks at Paul's prayers and the introductions of his epistles and, and looks at what, what does Paul pray in these kinds of things. Uh, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, of course, this passage that we're going to look at this morning is one of those prayers that Paul uh, that Paul prays. So as we walk through it this morning, I want us to look to look at it, to think about it from some various standpoints all at once. One of those is uh, is what we should pray for other Christians. One of those is what we should pray for ourselves. One of those is what we should be striving for in our Christian life. And then one of those is ultimately what Paul's praying for is Christian maturity. We can sum it up that way. Uh, and so it's a good picture of what Christian maturity looks like. So stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Uh, I won't do what Mickey did last week and read an entire, an entire letter. We'll just, uh, we'll stop after a few verses. Um, so chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Then so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that we don't have to guess, uh, but God, that you've revealed yourself to us, all things pertaining to life and godliness. 
Uh, We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the Colossians, um, all these people that are our spiritual forefathers. Um, God, we thank you for the love that Paul had for these people. Um, God, in this this prayer that Paul uh, prayed specifically for the Colossians, we pray also for ourselves uh, and for this body, uh, that uh, that we would increase, be filled with the knowledge of you, spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we would live a life worthy of you, that we'd walk pleasing to you, that we'd bear fruit, grow in knowledge, be strengthened for endurance, all of this because you have given us an inheritance with the saints and and transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. Be with us this morning uh, as we walk through your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So Paul says, and so... From the day we heard, so and so, because of the previous eight verses, and from the day we heard of your faith in Jesus and your love for the saints, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. Uh, now Carson, D.A. Carson points out, and these aren't really you know, main factors in our message this morning, but he does, there are some factors that I think are, are, are worth noting. One of those is that Paul is praying for people he's never met. He never has met the church at Colossae. Um, He prays unceasingly, and then Paul's prayer is linked to his thanksgiving. He's thankful to God for the faith and the love that he's seen in the Colossians, and and the continuation of his prayer is a result of that thanksgiving. The first thing we see in this passage is that Paul prays for Christians to be filled with the knowledge of God. Paul prays for Christians to be filled with the knowledge of God. Um, We're filled with, Paul says in verse 9, the knowledge of his will. Now, the word that Paul uses for knowledge is is interesting and important. Uh, We mentioned last time that Colossians is addressing a heresy. Scholars don't really agree on what heresy uh, is being addressed because there's just some different aspects um, in the book that are being addressed. But one option is, is the heresy of Gnosticism. Uh, and, and there were various forms of it, but at the root of Gnosticism is that there is a type of secret knowledge that, um, that's only possessed by a select few, and that knowledge, um, that knowledge requires some kind of like mystical higher plane of existence, spiritual knowledge. To them, Jesus was just a starting point. It's okay to know Jesus, but if you really want to experience all of it, there is to have. You have to attain to this kind of higher mystical type of knowledge. Uh, not, not unlike the spiritualism that's, that's rampant in our day. Um, not a knowledge revealed in God's word, but by spiritualism, whatever that means. Uh, now, the, the Gnostics characteristic word for, for knowledge is, is a word used in the New Testament, the word gnosis. Uh, and the, word, the word gnosis or gnosis um, it can mean like an intimate kind of knowledge, but it can also be just kind of a general knowledge kind of thing. Uh, but what's interesting is that Paul uses the word epinosis, epinosis. Um, and the word epinosis carries the sense of not only knowledge of something, but a full participation in that thing that you have a knowledge of, right? Um, so what, what is God's will that we have a knowledge of. Pray that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. What does God want? Often I hear people speaking of, of knowing God's will, and I've, I've spoken of it as well, um, in a very, I want to know God's will 
for my life kind of thing. Uh, what job should I get? Who should I marry? What decision I should make? Uh, and, and it's not inherently bad to, to seek God's will in those things because we should seek God's will in the decisions we make in our life. The problem is, I think too often, it become, that becomes the primary way that we think of God's will. is God's will for me. And when we do that, it becomes self-centered, uh, and, we be, and we forget that, that there, is a, there is an objective will of God that we can all know that's the same for all of us. And sometimes we can get too wrapped up in this subjective will for myself, what God wants for me, instead of looking at what is God's objective will for all of us, and then living to that. So it's important that we get a sense of, of God's will uh, I'm going to read a few verses. You don't have to turn to them because I'm going to rapid fire. Uh, you can if you want. Um, John 1.13. John's writing and he, and he talks about those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Talking about spiritual rebirth. So God's will is connected to salvation. Galatians 1, 3, and 5 says, Grace to you, this is Paul, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. So what is the will of God connected to? Jesus delivering himself over um, for our sins, deliverance from this present evil age. And Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says, Even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, homely, some of us, uh, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So God's will is being connected to salvation. Uh, And then a few verses later in Ephesians, 8 and 10, 8 through 10, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. So there, God's will being connected to, uh, to salvation, but not even just salvation um, of, of his people, but a a salvation of all of creation, which is a longing um, for the day where Christ returns, puts all things right. Uh, N.T. Wright said this, he says, The knowledge of God's will is more than simply an insight into how God wants his people to behave. It is an understanding of God's whole saving purpose in Christ, and hence a knowledge of God himself. So when Paul is writing here of a knowledge of God's will, It's a knowledge of what God has accomplished in Christ. And as we'll see later, this is the foundation of Paul's prayer uh, and and all other implications of how we are to live in light of what Christ has accomplished. So what's the fullness, the knowledge of God's will that Paul asked for? Uh, It's a deeper knowledge of what Christ has accomplished, and then everything else is an implication of that. If we understand what Christ has accomplished for us, then, then everything else flows out of it. So this knowledge, Paul writes, is in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It carries the sense of in union with or in regards to. Um, so it's a knowledge of God's will that's in union with spiritual wisdom and understanding. What is spiritual wisdom? It's certainly not worldly wisdom. First uh, Corinthians 3.19 says that the wisdom of this world is folly with God. It's not our own wisdom. Proverbs 3.7 says, be not wise in your own eyes. And it's not the spirituality that the world talks about. How many people are like, well, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, right? Oh, what are your spiritual beliefs, right? Nobody knows. Um, it's, it's really just Gnosticism repackaged. Uh, Ephesians 1, uh, 16 through 18 uh, says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So spiritual wisdom and understanding is a, is a wisdom and it's an understanding that's characterized by the activity of the Holy Spirit, given to us by Christ, made possible through the work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. So Paul is, is praying for a knowledge of God's will, what was accomplished for us in Christ, uh, implying a participation in Christ, uh, that's infused with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, so this knowledge, this knowledge of God's will in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the foundation by which the Christian life is lived. It's all built on Christ as the foundation. So we come to the knowledge of God's will um, through, through the proclamation of the gospel revealed in the Bible. We come to spiritual wisdom and understanding of all of the implications of the gospel through the reading of God's word as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the Christian life is not a bunch of to-do lists and not-to-do lists. I wish I had more not-to-do lists. Um, the, the Christian life is understanding what Christ has accomplished for us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and everything else is an outflow of that. D.A. Carson says this, um, lest we think, oh, I just need to read the Bible and I'll, it'll be fine. Uh, D.A. Carson says, basic Bible knowledge does not ensure the kind of knowledge of God's will uh, that Paul has in mind. For example, plenty of people, lost people, have basic Bible knowledge but are lost, right? They lack a knowledge of God. But ignorance of the Bible, Carson writes, the focal place where God has so generously disclosed his will pretty well ensures that we will not be filled with this knowledge of God's will, this knowledge that consists in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what he's saying is that, you know, reading the Bible does not ensure intimate knowledge of God, right? But he's saying that not reading the Bible certainly makes sure that that doesn't happen, right? Uh, we always try to complicate things, but it's, it's, it's simple, really. We participate in the means of grace that the Lord has given to us, the reading of the word, prayer, Fellowship of the Saints. Um, we're, we're actually, I don't think we've mentioned the, uh, what we're doing for the prayer and fasting coming up in January, uh, but we're going to be focusing on um, the means of grace that God has given to us. Um, prayer, reading of the word, fellowship, uh, as just to, to understand what it is, like what are the means by which God has given us to pursue him, to pursue knowledge of him, to pursue love of him. Paul prays for Christians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. For what purpose? 
Uh, now the Gnostics, at least the Gnostics in general, believe that the, that the body is inherently evil, the soul is inherently good, so there's a disconnect between the body and the soul. Um, some Gnostics view that as a reason to practice asceticism, like we need to just refuse our bodies any kind of pleasure. Uh, other Gnostics thought like, well, it doesn't matter what we do with our body then, if our body is inherently evil anyway. So they did whatever they wanted. That's certainly not what Paul is talking about. That's not the purpose of knowledge. Here's the purpose of why Paul is asking for the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. It's because profound knowledge of Christ's work profoundly affects the way we live. Um, being filled with the knowledge of God, Paul writes, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul prays, be filled with the knowledge of God's will in spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord so that you can live a life that's fully pleasing to him. John Gill wrote this. He was an 18th century uh, particular Baptist pastor. He wrote this in, in his commentary on Galatians. The apostle prays that their knowledge might issue in practice for knowledge without practice is of no avail. He first asked for knowledge and then practice, for how should men act according to the will of God or Christ unless they know it? And when they know it, they should not rest in their knowledge, but put it in practice. The purpose of Paul's petition uh, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is that Christians might be pleasing to Jesus. Uh, our aim is to walk worthy of the Lord. Now, many, many cultures around the world are, are shame cultures, um, that the whole point of life is to live up to your family name, uh, to live up to your, to your nation's values, to live up to um, your heritage. Uh, and and for, for Westerners, in contrast, most people are applauded if they, uh, if they shake off right, uh, their family heritage, or if they shake off uh, their, their nation, or if they shake off their name. Uh, and I'm not saying that shame cultures are, you know, just awesome and we should all aspire to that because there's, uh, there's a lot of um, pain and manipulation uh, that, that goes along with it. But uh, in, in the first century where most cultures were kind of some kind of akin to a shame culture where you're expected to live up worthy to some kind of, um, some kind of calling, uh, this, this statement would resonate. It's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4.1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Or Philippians 1.7, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So we aim to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But unlike a shame culture where people seek to walk in a manner worthy of their name or their heritage or whatever, uh, and they do it for fear of shame and embarrassment, we seek to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in order to, as Paul says, be fully pleasing to Him. So here's the sense. Being fully pleasing to God is delightfully yielding to the will of another person for their happiness. So it's a, it's a matter of joyful, willing submission to God and God's will, his desire for us, in order to bring him joy. 
God is glorified when we delightfully yield to his will. So the desire um, to walk worthy of the Lord, to live a life pleasing to him, uh, is rooted in what Christ has accomplished. Uh, And it's not a matter of paying God back. I've often heard that, like, why do we try to do good works and why do we obey? It's like, well, because we have to pay God back for what he did for us, right? Uh, The whole point of the gospel is that you can't, right? You can't pay it. That's why Christ paid it. So it's not a matter of paying God back because it's not it's not possible. Um, the whole point is the gospel. Of the gospel, like I said, is that we can't pay the sin debt. Instead, as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ, there's no other option. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you understand that that when that when we understand God's will revealed in what Christ accomplished. As we grow in that, there becomes no other option than to live a life that glorifies God out of a desire for obedience, a desire to walk pleasing to him. So Paul gives us a couple ways to do this. Uh, First, he says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, So these two really have to be talked together, about together, because they work in a symbiotic relationship. So notice that Paul doesn't repeat knowledge of God's will. Instead, this time Paul says knowledge of God. So Paul wants us to understand or have a knowledge both of God's will revealed in Christ and also of God himself. So if you look back up at verse 6 or over, mine it's over the next column. Back in verse 6, Paul says that the, he's talking about the gospel and he says the gospel uh, is bearing fruit and increasing. And here he says, here he says, um, I pray that you yourselves be bearing fruit and increasing. Bearing fruit in good works, increasing in knowledge. Paul's drawing attention to this relationship that we talked about on Sunday school this morning, actually, this relationship between belief and action. One commentator said this, he says, One begets the other in a delectable upward spiral. The more one truly serves God, the more one opens to knowledge of God. And the more one knows of God, the more one wants to serve God. So it goes onward and upward. This relationship of of knowledge and the bearing of fruit. And again, it's not fueled by us. It's the knowledge and wisdom of the Spirit. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Bearing fruit and good works and growing in knowledge, they go hand to hand. One does not work without the other. If we try to bear fruit without a knowledge of who God is and a knowledge of God's will, then we end up with every works-based religion in the world. That's what they all are, is an attempt to bear fruit apart from any kind of saving knowledge of God. Now, on the other hand, if we try to grow in knowledge without the bearing of fruit, um, we just end up with like a cold orthodoxy. We end up like the person that James talks about in James um, chapter 1 or 2. should have wrote it down. Uh, when he says that, that we end up being like the person who looks in the mirror, walks away, forgets what he looks like. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And James also says that, that faith that does not have works, meaning a faith that does not work itself out in the bearing of fruits, is a dead faith. It's a both and, not, a neither, not an either 
or bearing fruit and growing in knowledge with the Holy Spirit working in us, producing both. Paul says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So Christians are strengthened to endurance and patience with joy, with all power according to God's glorious might. Read a few more verses, Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? His great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Romans 1, 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So Paul prays that, that Christians be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. What might? It's the kind of might that raised Jesus from the dead and is now unleashed in the gospel for salvation, as Paul wrote in Romans 1. So worded a bit differently, here's what Paul's praying for, that we be empowered in power by power that raised Christ from the dead. Now, it's at this point that if I was a particular uh, theological persuasion, um, I could say, do you hear that, Christian? We have power. So name it and claim it. We have victory, perform miracles, heal. The power that raised Christ from the dead is in you, so you can do and be anything that you want. Sounds good. Uh, But that's not what Paul says. Instead, what Paul says actually destroys any kind of prosperity, health and wealth type of theology. Paul writes, Be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. This being Paul writing from prison, right? This being Paul uh, who gave his life for the sake of the gospel. The same Paul who said, I count it, you know, all joy to suffer for Christ. So we're not strengthened with all power um, so that we can, you know, have some Christian TV show begging people for money and telling them, if you give us your money, then you'll be blessed. No, we're strengthened for power for the sake of endurance and patience. Paul doesn't pray that they be delivered from trials. It's a big theme in all of Paul's prayers. Again, we should pray for God to help us in our trials. Uh, But I think often most of our prayer is for God to help us in our trials. Paul doesn't pray that we be delivered from trials. He prays that we be strengthened with endurance and patience in the midst of them. He prays that power be unleashed in the lives of Christians so that they can have endurance and patience with joy. N.T. Wright, again, uh, wrote this. He says, Paul singles out these qualities as the weapons one needs to live in a world undaunted by its crises and panics, a patient and long-suffering spirit, the quiet corollary of faith, 
hope and love is the product of the settled conviction that the Father of Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of the world and that he is able to bring about his purposes in his own time and manner. It's James 1, 2, and 4, where James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you're delivered from trials. Nope. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that because of Christ, you'll be delivered from all of them. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is the exact same Greek word that's translated as endurance in Colossians 1.11. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for endurance and patience with joy. Why is there joy? Because as N.T. Wright wrote, we rest in the settled conviction that God is the sovereign Lord of all things and will work out his purposes in whatever manner he sees fit. So God prays that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of God and a a spirit-empowered wisdom and understanding so that they can live lives worthy of God, that they can please God, and they're bearing a fruit and growing a knowledge of God and being strengthened, having a joyful endurance and patience resulting from being strengthened with God's glorious might. So here's the important question. What's the foundation of all of this? Paul already mentioned it up in verse 4. We heard of your faith in Christ. It's the Colossians' faith in Christ and their belief in the gospel. Paul goes on in all of this, giving thanks to the Father. Endurance and patience with joy through all trials, thankfully. Why? Paul writes, verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God has so the Colossians have a new identity. That's the foundation. Why can they live this way? Because there's a new identity. This identity, God has qualified the Colossians to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What inheritance? Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And you who were once strangers to the covenants of promise have now been brought near to them. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 Peter writes primarily to Gentiles, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are in God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the foundation... For the, for the Colossians, being able to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. One reason is that they now share 
we now share in the inheritance of the saints. It's the inheritance promised to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ. Abraham was promised offspring more numerous than the stars. Galatians 3.7 tells us that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 3.29, if you were Christ's, then you were Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, no male, female. You are all one in Christ. N.T. Wright said this uh, about this inheritance. The heritage of God's people is no longer the prerogative of one race, but has been opened up so that people of every conceivable background can share in it. Here's what the inheritance is. It's an inheritance in God's plan from all eternity to redeem a people for himself. And it's not something that we qualify ourselves for. The saints under, under the old covenant didn't qualify themselves. Saints under the new covenant don't qualify ourselves. We're not adequate for it. Instead, Paul writes that he has delivered us, or he's qualified you to share in the inheritance. How does he make us adequate? How does he qualify us? God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Read a couple more uh, passages and I want you to listen to similarities between what I just read in these passages. Ephesians 2, 1 and 10. Uh, I, I feel like I read this every time I preach, but you know, lo and behold, it's probably one of the greatest passages. Um, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So do you hear the similarities between domain of darkness, following the course of this world, or in the prince of the power of the air, and the similarities between kingdom of his beloved son and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7 through 12 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We have redemption and forgiveness, the mystery of God's will set forth in Christ and him we have obtained an inheritance. And here's what, here's what we gather from this passage as, as a whole. If you are in Christ then by his eternal, sovereign decree, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. 
He has delivered you from the domain of darkness, plucked you up out of it, and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And through his Son, you have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This is not something that you did yourself. I don't care how much you think you did. You didn't. God did it. He picked you up from darkness. You were dead, and he breathed life into you. And as a result of that truth, we pray this for others, We pray this for ourselves. We strive to seek after these things that Paul is praying for. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, but a deeper understanding of the work of Christ and all the implications of it. If you have five minutes a day um, or today or whatever, find more time. Uh, But if you have five minutes a day, uh, contemplate on the work of Christ. Because all things flow out of what Christ has accomplished for us. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. To bear fruit, which increases our desire to know him, which decreases, increases our desire to bear fruit, which increases our desire to know him all the way up. We pray for ourselves, for others. We strive to be strengthened with power according to the glorious might of our God, Father, who raised Christ from the dead, and is now, as Paul said, unleashed in the gospel, for I am unashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God to salvation. We pray for others, for ourselves. We strive after having all endurance and patience with joy, no matter what comes our way. That's a tough one. We, li- we like to pray to be delivered from our trials. We don't like to pray for endurance and patience in the midst of them. And we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints who has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And it's in him we have redemption, we have the forgiveness of sin. To the one here who is not in Christ, um, there is no neutrality. Despite what our world says, that you can just be spiritual, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Uh, you can take a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. The truth is that there is no neutrality. Uh, Jesus uh, was, was inclusive in that um, all people, there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female. The most inclusive religion in the world, really. Uh, also, very exclusive, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So if you're not in Christ, there's no neutrality. If you are not in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, you are in the domain of darkness, and you remain dead in your sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit that is now in the sons of disobedience. You still walk among them. If you, don't, if you aren't in Christ, you don't share in the inheritance of the saints. You have one inheritance, uh, and that is damnation for all eternity because of your sin and the wrath of God poured out against you through your, because of your sin. If you are not in Christ, you have no redemption. You are still enslaved to your sin. If you are not in Christ, you have no forgiveness. Your sin is still on your head. And that's bad news. But here's the good news. That God has revealed 
the mystery of his will set forth in Christ. And that mystery of God's will is to redeem a people for himself. And to do this, Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. He went to the cross and he bore the weight of the sin of all people who would believe in him upon himself. He died a death that we deserve so that all, the Bible says, who repent and believe in Christ will have their sin forgiven. You'll have a redemption and an inheritance in the kingdom of God qualified by God himself. So if you're here this morning uh, and you are a Christian, again, uh, be encouraged by the prayer of Paul. Consider praying that kind of prayer for other people. I have to be honest, sometimes when I go to pray, it's help me this, help this person with that, help, you know. But, but, but Paul says, pray to know God. And if you pray to know God, then guess what's going to happen? You're going to bear fruit. You're going to want to know God more. You're going to have uh, endurance, strength, and patience. But if you're not in Christ this morning, um, I, I mean, I've just, I've just told you what, what that means. Uh, repent and believe the gospel. There's no magic formula. There's no magic prayer to pray. Uh, there's no form that you have to fill out. The Bible says repent and believe the gospel. Um, I'm going to, Mickey is, is going to be up front. I'm going to move back to the guitar. Uh, I couldn't find anybody who was willing to just play piano. And we're going to have just a time of response um, for, for Christians to, uh, for you to, to pray, consider praying in this way. And if you're not in Christ, um, there, there's no reason to, to tarry. There's no reason to wait. If you know the Holy Spirit is, is drawing you to salvation, that the Father is giving you over uh, uh, into, into his hand. Mickey's here. Come talk to him. Um, but Mickey's, Mickey's going to come up. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a time of response. Uh, Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this truth um, revealed, revealed to us in your word, God. Um, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, and we thank you for inspiring him through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, and I pray that you would help us, uh, God, to pray for these things, a knowledge of your will in Christ, that we not be so self-centered and self-serving um, in our Christian life, but that we would just seek to know you through the means that you've given us. Uh, Lord, if there's one in here this morning who's not in faith in Christ, um, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to salvation in Christ's name. Amen. I'm just going to have a, a few minutes, uh, just a response time.